Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Big, huge, enormous Sunday night edition of the Dunk Time Basketball Podcast. We got Game 3s and Game 4s to talk about in some series. We'll take stock of all eight series, even the ones, or the one rather, that is over uh, and another one that is uh, three games to one at this point we are sponsored today by our friends at helix sleep go to helixsleep.com slash cap space to get 50 dollars off your custom mattress and indochino get any premium indochino suit for just 389 dollars using that familiar cap space code also for those of you who have tried out hubble contacts a sponsor on past episodes or would like to where you can get two free weeks of contacts and then it's only a dollar a day thereafter there is a place on their site actually where although there's no discount code you can mark down uh where you found out about them so if you are kind enough to let them know that you came from us that would be greatly appreciated all right Danny, let's get started here i think we'll save memphis san antonio the best game for last because i really want to go through possession by possession i know not everyone is into that so we'll, we'll put that at the end so you can skip forward to that if you want to uh right away but i, I think the place to start here is with this okc houston series uh although the end of the game was a bit of an eyesore today it certainly was i mean you have two teams though the thunder are, are not as nearly as heavy practitioners of this as the rockets who are very adept at foul-seeking behavior, and that really did rear its head late. Houston got a few fouls on shots, and it it really did mar the game. And then, of course, the dear friend Hacka returned with I don't know Racka Robertson. I don't I don't have the right word for uh, it. But I think uh, uh, Hackerson would be my my uh, version of that that works. personally. But yeah, Robertson had been 0 for nine in the series. They started following him, and he obviously had been very effective on Harden, who later said that he had suffered an ankle injury in game three that was bothering him as, as he struggled in this one to 16 points uh, but Robertson was definitely giving him problems and they were, were down went to the hack of Robertson it didn't really work that well in terms of like that they weren't up by that much afterwards but they did get Robertson out of the game and then I think really the two biggest plays of the game to me and we can talk about you know what a shit show it was late in the game were Lou Williams driving to his left uh, 25 feet from the basket Oladipo did kind of put his forearm out but was not actually making contact with Williams at the time Williams went up through his arm shooting foul three shot foul and then I think it was Jeremy Grant was called for a foul on Harden in, in similar circumstances off a switch and oh no it was Taj Gibson uh, who 
again, a pretty dubious call where there wasn't contact. Uh, Gibson did stick his arm out trying to hedge on the pick and roll. I thought that they did not do a good job dealing with that. They had Gibson guarding a shooter a lot of the times, usually Trevor Ariza, and uh, they probably, I think, should have trapped Harden a little bit more instead. Uh, Harden got downhill a bunch of times. They're really sticking to Ariza on that play, and, and he's not that great of a shooter that you need to do that. And but that was six cheap points. They made all all six of those free throws in the fourth quarter, and those shots really got the Rockets back into control of the game late. If it hadn't been for those plays and a few others, one of the big things that happened in this game was Oklahoma City rebounding their own missed free throws. They had plenty of opportunities because of Robertson getting hacked and missing a ton of them. But Stephen Adams had one of the best missed free throws I've ever seen, and it there there were a few crazy late swings, and one of them was related to free throws. Yeah, he actually was able to just miss the free throw. We'll start it off here, that sequence down the end. Houston led it by four, and they inbound the ball. They try to press. Harden breaks through it. Uh, and then goes for the, the knockout blow for a bucket and instead throws it away trying to hit Nene and then Harden actually Euro fouls Steven Adams to prevent a, a fast break or maybe a three with them uh, up four what did you think of that decision I, you know I think it's pretty close to math neutral assuming you get the defensive rebound on the free throw if they miss one yeah assuming you get the defensive rebound I thought that it would have been better to play out that it was 22 seconds I think that was something around there and just to make Oklahoma city burn another five or six probably more considering the way their offense usually goes yeah there was the risk of a chance of a three but i i probably would have let it go at least a little bit further down the court but as you said it's math neutral i don't have a strong opinion on it yeah i mean i don't know that to be true but just my own intuitively it's yeah yeah adams not a great free throw shooter did make the first and then if you didn't see the play he intentionally missed it as hard as he could off the front rim and that's a good way to intentionally miss it right back to himself usually the way that you'll box out on those plays is you'll pinch the guy who's on the lane already will pinch down against the more dangerous offensive rebounder of uh, the two guys on the lane line and then someone from the three-point line is supposed to run in and get the shooter that's how they do it in the nba at least and instead adams did it so quickly that that guy couldn't get there and he threw it right out to russell westbrook for a deep three that brought them within one and then they didn't want to foul right away. They went for the trap, which I thought was pretty good strategy. But once they broke the trap, they missed a couple of chances to foul. Uh, in particular, Adams had a chance, I think, on Ariza. And Ariza found Nene under the basket. Nene got the end one. And so OKC never actually ended up getting the ball at the end with a, a chance to, to tie it. Because then... Well, and sorry, yeah. I want to take a quick second to talk about how terrible a foul that was. I think it was Oladipo who fouled him because... Uh, no, no, it was, uh, it was, Jer- it was uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Grant. Grant or, or Jeremy Grant, yeah. So in those kind of circumstances, and this is broadly true more than this, but in this particular one, down one with Houston having the ball, you have two options. Either you can foul the guy or you can concede the basket because he wasn't going to hold, he wasn't going to hold for the last, like to burn the clock. He was just going to, going to put that ball in. And what Grant did was he did neither thing. He didn't foul hard enough that the shot wasn't going to go up and have a decent chance of going in because it was really close to the basket. And he didn't let him go. So they didn't benefit at all from a time perspective and it took away that opportunity of either maybe they would have Houston would have intentionally fouled whatever they were going to do but it dramatically hurt their chances of winning it was completely preventable 
Well, he just wasn't in position to follow him hard enough. Like it would have been a flagrant if he tried to follow him hard. I mean, I think at that point he had to let him go, but it's tough. I mean, you're racing back as fast as possible. You know that you're supposed to be fouling and uh, it's just a a tough situation. I think really the bigger error to me was two failures to foul earlier in the possession when they had a chance uh, once they had broken out of the initial trap. But, you know, even then they would have been down three with the ball most likely and that's you know your win expectancy there is probably you know like 10 12 percent even at that point you know your chance of a tying three is maybe 25 30 percent at best and then you're going to go into overtime where you if you're being generous you got a 50 percent chance of, of winning so uh they did however almost blow it again because after another bucket uh by okc they ended up uh, inbounding the ball to Harden, threw it over his head. He probably offensive fouled Abrinas actually trying to get open. And then uh, Russ actually knocked it away and it just happened to go right to Eric Gordon. And Gordon uh, was able to get both... Uh, both free throws there and put the game out of reach but it was really uh pretty much a comedy of errors at the end uh what stuck out to you more from uh the main portion of the game though uh, i mean i think there's one thing that in particular that what westbrook was asked about after the game that seems like the most salient to me well i'll we'll save that for a second but the first thing for me was that harden was again pretty awful for three quarters he was good to very good in the fourth quarter and it could be the ankle issue that he talked about before but it is a concern because Houston relies on him a lot for their offense and he wasn't making good passes he wasn't hitting his shots he was settling too much and his defense was atrocious and that's that's fairly common with him but all of those things made it more impressive that Houston was able to come back though of course they got some help from Oklahoma City's bench yeah they did and uh Russell Westbrook in his controversial game two when he had the 43 shots was still quite at the positive that was the case again in this one OKC was negative 18 in the nine minutes that Westbrook did play. And you could say, hey, you know, LeBron James plays 44 minutes a game. Why doesn't Westbrook play more? And according to Royce Young, who who reports on the Thunder for ESPN, the Thunder research shows that if Westbrook plays more, you know, an entire quarter, it really seems to affect him negatively. And he does a lot better when he gets the rest. That's why you'll see him go out with, you know, two, three minutes left in the third and come back with two three minutes gone by in the fourth uh but i really you know for him to be effective i'm not sure that he really especially with the offensive load that he has can play that many minutes and westbrook 35 points in this one 10 of 28 from the field 12 of 13 from the foul line 14 rebounds 14 assists many of those rebounds have a spectacular variety by the way no stat padding that i saw in this one in, in particular but it again begs the question, uh, it really seems like in the first half, when he has more of a team-oriented approach, they do much better. And then when he gets more selfish in the second half, part of that may be because they go to more defensive lineups and just expect him to carry everything. Uh, he, he does worse and, and the team does worse as well. But again, it wasn't, they did lose some ground with him on, on the floor in the fourth quarter. But I mean, he was still plus 14 in a game they lost by four points. Do we want to talk at all about the the little post-game tiff? I have thoughts, but I don't know if we want to talk about it uh all right i'll put you on a clock 60 seconds here because this kind of drum well actually i have some thoughts too so yeah let's do it okay so first of all it's a completely fair question and while while barry tremble wanted stephen adams to answer it 
it, it's it is a question you're probably not going to get a good answer on adams might be somebody to do it but well, for Russ so to you, say, you gotta you gotta give some more background here first though okay so basically what happened is barry trammell the they in the post game for a pre- playoff game they often have two players at the podium together barry trammell longtime writer for the oklahoman asked stephen adams sitting with russell westbrook about the team struggling when westbrook was off the floor westbrook basically stopped stephen adams from answering the question and basically said you can't split us up you can't separate us and then did the next question I don't know if that's a Belichick thing. I can't remember who started who started that, but basically just shushed any chances that Trammell had of asking a follow-up. Yeah, and Kevin Arnovitz was tweeting about this, but this is something that I've really believed for a long time, frankly. Like, this is sports, you know, and especially if you're asking someone about a game, you know, this isn't like, hey, uh, you know, why didn't you spend suspend this guy, you know, when he was like accused of hitting his wife or something? I mean, like that's that's real investigative journalism that requires real answers and you can be in a more adversarial position there. But and there are certain questions where, you know, maybe because I didn't go to journalism school and I wasn't taught this way, like especially in like a press conference scrum setting, like my feeling is kind of like it's not that serious. It, you know, I mean, people who are like freaking out about like, oh, you know, it's a fair question. He should have to answer it, blah, blah, blah. Like and, you know, then everybody who's like saying, oh, you shouldn't ask that question. You're like the local paper They're they're freaking out because they feel like it's like abusing them or something. I mean, but to me, I agree, like you're not going to get a real answer to to it and this idea that oh well you know hey i have to ask the question you know i'm a journalist i I appreciate people who have that approach and i think when you're talking to a general manager or you're talking to an owner sort of more of a a sophisticated actor about the long-term view of the franchise even a coach about hey why did you make this specific decision uh that's one thing but with players we go too far in this like you know deposition like parsing of every comment that they make and oh what do you think you meant there oh uh, kevin durant said that uh, draymond green doesn't try for triple doubles and so oh that's obviously let's parse into that and see whether like he's saying that as like a shot across russ's bow you know since he left there and russ is going for triple doubles and it's just like speaking off the cuff in a press conference setting it just people just go into it way too much and it's more to me you know a theater where i would like to you know if i ask a question i think it's a legitimate one and i'd like to make this podcast better and help our our analysis but you know i'm not viewing this as like you know we're investigating the watergate scandal here yeah i think those are all good points and the real challenge is that while it is a a fair question to ask it is also a question that's unlikely to get a good answer asking it of billy donovan to me is completely fair especially considering the way we've talked about their rotations the idea that victor oladipo i feel and i believe you agree should play more with that second unit especially because it's not like russ is maximizing him so those questions can be asked to the coach because the coach can actually make that decision players aren't going to throw other players under the bus by saying oh they need to do better when I'm not on the floor like that's it's not really a, a winnable circumstance so well unless I, they're Paul George Paul George would well, wait, Paul George might but but other other players won't really and also since Adams and Russ's minutes are generally pretty well tied together even if he's going to give an, an intelligent answer he's going to be doing it more as an outsider as well and I, I I think that what Russ was doing was more in the performance realm in terms of you know showing yeah, support for, for his 
for teammates. the locker room. That's yeah. the same thing that the Fizdale thing was. Absolutely. And maybe part of Fred Hoiberg's. But I, I think that <laughs> it's it's a challenge to kind of square the circle of all the different things that a press conference is trying to be, you know, information gathering, entertainment, and everything else. And so you just take it for what it is and understand, you know, Russ had to do what he did. I don't know that, that Barry Trammell had to ask that question, but, you know, he made he made that decision and we move on from it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was anything wrong with the question, but yeah, and I don't know that it's even like trying to drive a wedge in. And the and the thunder. No, no, I don't think PR I don't think so either. Is you know a little bit over the top to be to the point that people have actually written about that. So, uh, but the way I view, it, I mean, for example, like. A lot of times, if I have a guest on the podcast, uh, you know, I, I don't have guests that really, you know, I'm that adversarial with it really ever. Um, but if I did, I would totally be willing to just like send them every question that I was going to do ahead of time. Like I, I usually do that when I have a guest on the show because you get a better answer that way. You know, you, you trying to just think of an answer off the cuff or like, especially if it's like, oh, who are some people or here are some stories. Like if you can actually think about it ahead of time, usually you can give a better answer than just, oh man, I got to think of this like right now you know so and this idea that oh we can't give them the questions ahead of time like then they'll like know what the answer is like yeah again you know we're not interviewing the president here um all right th- that's enough on that more on the game i mean we talked about how they need to play oladipo at point guard uh ennis Cantor can't play him uh, continues to struggle. Donovan did well to separate him from James Harden. Uh, and then, unfortunately, Houston continued to kill Cantor anyway, in particular in the second quarter when Russ was out. I thought that their pick-and-roll defense was really bad. Their strategy is, uh, on the side pick-and-rolls, this is with Lou Williams in particular, is we're going to try and ice side pick-and-rolls, meaning keep him out of the middle. And so Lou Williams, who is a very smart player, what he would do is he'd catch the ball, and then someone like Grant, who was guarding him, I think a lot of the time, or Oladipo, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll actually jump away from the basket to prevent them from going over the top of that side screen. And so what uh, Williams would do is he'd start his attack just as the guy was jumping away from the basket. So he can blow by him. Now he doesn't even need the screen. And now you've basically just got like a two-on-one against Anis Cantor at the rim. So I thought that, you know, if you have a better defender back there, you can do a lot better. And in fact, OKC's first half defense was unbelievable. They held him to 11 of 28 shooting at the rim, uh, only 8 of 12 in the second half for... for uh, the Rockets, but I thought that really wasn't doing Cantor any favors, but then he's not really able to do much either. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, James Harden, according to Mark Spears, asked D'Antoni to take Capella out of the game after he flubbed a couple of Harden's passes, and they went with Ryan Anderson at center, and that matchup against Cantor, again, uh, fell into the can't-play-him realm, and they, they got their butts kicked during that period as well. Cantor is always a trade-off. Like, you know, it's whether, whether his offense is worth his defense, and what has been striking to me about this series is not that his defense has been so bad it's that his offense hasn't been good enough to carry it and fortunately for Oklahoma City they have enough guys now that they made the Taj Gibson Doug McDermott trade they actually have enough players to make that to make that survivable there will be times if they made it to other rounds had other opponents where Cantor could be playable but he's not at for most moments of this series especially now that D'Antoni and the Rockets know how to attack him yeah, and so I think you really, especially once they went with Anderson, they had to get Cantor out of the game right then. And if they feel like, hey, you know, we got to get uh, Cantor some post touches, well, Taj Gibson had probably more success against Ryan Anderson in game three than Cantor did uh, going against a center. So I think you go back to Gibson there. Also, just more pick and rolls with Victor Oladipo. 
uh and and because that's your other problem with putting another point guard in not only are you just have a guy who's not a good offensive player but now you're taking the ball out of Oladipo's hands and he actually played pretty well in this game he was seven out of ten from the field finally had a good game uh 15 points and so he was pretty good too it was uh Man, though, Robertson, his offense, he actually made one of his two three-pointers, but two of 12 from the free-throw line, that's just so bad. But in the first half, he was amazing defensively. He had five block shots, Adams had three, and as a team, they had 14 blocks in the first half, and then they had zero blocks in the second half. Yeah, I mean, we, we spent some time on the Twitter NBA show. We asked listeners to to put in, you know, the most blocks in a playoff game and all that sort of stuff. And then it ended up being totally immaterial because they didn't get any in the second half. And some of that was Houston was taking kind of a different tenor of shots in that second half. But I do want to talk a little bit about where this where it goes from here. Well, I mean, probably to an OKC loss in, in game five, you would think. But, you know, this series, I still feel OK about my prediction that it would go seven because... I felt that OKC largely outplayed them in game three for sure. And in game four in particular, I mean, look at some of these shooting lines for the Rockets. Like Harden was uh, five for 16. He had seven turnovers as well. Eight assists it was all. Pat Beverly, although he did have five steals, he was two for 13. Gordon and, and Lou Will, uh, both five of 13, although... Lou Williams seven to seven from the free throw line was pretty massive. So those guys both managed to get to 18 points. And then the only guy they couldn't stop was Nene, 12 of 12 from the field, 28 points. That's now the second game that Nene has absolutely killed him. He was a monster on the offensive glass with four offensive rebounds as well. Uh, So it was really, uh, it felt through the entire game to me that OKC was outplaying the Rockets, that their athleticism, simply playing harder than the Rockets as well, uh, was really a big problem. And then just those times with Russ out of the game. And really, the onus for that has to fall back on Sam Presti and Billy Donovan both. I mean, I think Oladipo not being the point guard, you know, that's something for Donovan. Sam Presti, you know, again, these one-way players can't play him. Uh, Norris Cole, Samaje Kristen Cole got picked up from the Chinese league with the month left in the season. The $2.5 million they're paying Ronnie Price to not be on the team this year and next year. Just, you know, not good enough acquisitions who can be two-way guys in the playoffs. I mean, if they had a better bench... I think they would have been much better during the regular season. We know that they're pretty solid with Westbrook on the floor and then horrendous off. Uh, And then, you know, maybe they could be close to as good of a team as the Rockets. I mean, this could be an unbelievable defensive team with some of the talent that they have. And if they just had a little bit more on the bench, you know, they're acceptable offensively when Russ is out there. You know, they could maybe be as good as the Rockets. And uh, your prediction about this series being very similar to that 2015 Western Conference Finals was dead on, Danny. I'll give you credit for that because uh, you said that they would be even, if not better, with Russ on the floor. And then uh, when they're off, and then the other thing too is, you know, the Thunder kind of run out of gas at the end of these games. I mean, they've had... The Thunder have had double-digit leads in the third quarter in each of the last three games, and they were tied at halftime even in game one. Yeah, I think that's all important. Another move when we're talking about the Presti issue, and you could throw some of this on ownership if you wanted, in 2014, taking Josh Houston's 29th. I mean, the 29th pick, you don't have a high expectancy of success, but Kyle Anderson, KJ McDaniels, if they were going to take a Euro, it probably would have been Nikola Jokic. If any, if they had taken somebody who was even a low-end contributor five to ten minutes a game from that spot, or just cut Houston loose if they realized they weren't going to ever play him and get somebody else for a minimum contract, they would have been helped a lot. 
But you know what the interesting thing is? I mean, they also made some moves. I mean, the Grant move, you can debate whether he's helped them more this year than Ilya. So I think now that they got Gibson, you could say Gibson could play some backup center as well. They got Grant to play as a backup four. They could play Robertson at the four. They got McDermott and Abrinas for some shooting. Victor Oladipo could play backup point guard. I mean, it actually is a probably a pretty deep, decent team. If they just didn't play Cantor or Cole or Kristen at all in this series, you know, maybe it would be 2-2, maybe it would be 3-1. Well, especially we've, we've seen Abrinas and McDermott both play well in recent time and you can separate out the guys and do a couple different things you can play Abrinas with Westbrook so Oladipo can have more time without sacrificing a lot of things that they can do you know small adjustments Donovan has been better coaching in series later on we noticed that last year and you know even though they ended up losing the last three games against the Warriors there were some things about that but in terms of rotations and adjustments I thought he did a good job in the Spurs series too we'll need to see more of that he's built on it with good success in game after the first two games and needs to do a lot more of it if they're going to get game five in Houston and make this a series again. Yeah, a, a few other notes from the OKC side. We should probably talk a little bit more about Houston's game as well. But from the OKC side, Russell Westbrook is just so much better when they get him in pick and roll and either get a switch onto a big or, you know, he can actually like make a pass to a guy. I mean, part of the problem when he isos is they've got Adams just standing and there's nowhere for like Adams and Robertson to stand when he isos right so they got one guy standing on each block and so now you can't actually like get a pass to those guys um they could at least when he does these isos maybe like you know set a screen uh, on the perimeter for somebody else so that like you know, there's something going on to occupy the defense, but they got to get Russ in pick and roll. He's just been much more effective in pick and roll this season in this series. He had this really ugly stretch in the middle of the fourth quarter where he just kept trying to back down and Patrick Beverly on the right wing and they just double teamed him in Harden again. Like the amount that he wasn't guarding Robertson was absolutely comical. And Russ was four out of 15 for mid-range, many of them very difficult shots. And for Russ, he's got to be able to get to, you know, 16 feet and then he can rise up. If he's shooting from 21 feet, from 19 feet those are bad shots for him when he can get isolated against a big cross him up and then rise up from closer in those are the shots he can make and he had I think three shots in a row from that distance at the end of the first half and then other than that he made one other shot for mid-range during the whole game uh anything else you want to say uh, from Houston's perspective here yes we have lost sight of it because they've won three of the four games in the series Ryan Anderson has scored in single digits in three of the four games of the series he did have 18 points in the game that they lost which is interesting in its own way and he is another player that is maybe less pivotal in this series though he certainly would help but if they're playing San Antonio in the next series he has to not only hit his shots but the def- he has to bend the defense in order for the Rockets to have their best chance of winning only 20 minutes for Anderson he was negative nine they spent much of the game with Ariza at the four he played 43 minutes and then Capella 18 minutes negative 25 for uh, the starting center and also I mean if this hardened ankle thing is a real deal he's got to start playing better too I mean he had 44 in, in game three and looked pretty good down the end hopefully he can get some treatment it's also then imperative that they close this game out now because with Memphis having won as we'll get to that means it's going to be a long series for the Spurs the Rockets can uh, get the rest advantage and for guys like Harden and Ariza, uh, that's going to be pretty important going forward. And also, I think we got to give Daryl Morey some credit. You know, they probably you know don't win a couple games in the series if they don't have Lou Williams to help uh, bolster their bench offense. 
That's true, and they felt comfortable enough to play him in this series in some pivotal moments by you know make, putting a reason at the four and a few other things. And if he wasn't on the team, they wouldn't really have another guy like that, especially because Sam Sam Decker is out with his hand injury still. Speaking of Lou Williams, this is another thing that you just the Thunder's lack of creativity at the end of games, especially when they had they had either McDermott or Brinus out there, oftentimes guarded by Lou Williams because they wanted to get some offense on the other end. Small small pick and roll with a good shooter like that, McDermott is is well used to setting screens and then popping for threes get Russ onto Lou Williams and then let him attack he can go right through Williams and get to the basket or just pull up over him uh I mean if they're gonna put Lou Williams out there I think they really need to attack him all right that's enough on this series but before we move on this from our friends at Helix Sleep Helix Sleep is the mattress that I sleep on every night and I am incredibly comfortable. I tried another mattress delivery company who shall remain nameless, but they are a one size fits all. And frankly, it wasn't very good. We had to utilize their return policy and uh, it ended up getting donated because it gave me back problems. It was pretty uncomfortable. So before they even became a sponsor, my girlfriend looked and found Helix Sleep. They're able to customize the mattress for us using their two to three minute questionnaire and as a result helix customers report a 30 percent improvement in overall sleep quality and i can certainly say it's the most comfortable mattress that i personally have slept on so after i had this great experience with them i was looking for sponsors for the podcast a, a year and a half ago I actually just dm their company twitter account and said hey you know i would love to be a, a spokesperson for your company and we started up i think i was actually the first podcast that they were ever on as well and it's been a, a nice partnership uh and have gotten a few friends who've gotten them as well and it's really no risk for you because you have 100 nights to try it out if you don't love it they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund with no questions asked the way to get started with helix sleep helixsleep.com slash cap space is the url and you can get 50 dollars off your order also let them know that you came from us by that url that's helixsleep.com slash cap space which we talk about all the time on the program that url again helixsleep.com slash cap space where do you want to go next here, Danny? Uh, I'll let you just pick the order, uh, other than that we're doing Spurs and uh, Grizz last. Let's do a shorter one, Warriors-Blazers. Yeah, I mean, I thought this game de- deserved a little bit more. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic oh, sure. did indeed, yeah, did, did, I mean, more than Washington and uh, the Cleveland series too, but... Uh, <laughs> I thought that Yusuf Nurkic started again. He did make a difference early in that game, but uh, certainly faded late, did not look to be moving comfortably. He will not play now in game four with them uh, having lost 119-113, but the Blazers' offense was absolutely on fire in the first half. They put up 67 points, and it was looking like another one of these game three losses for the Warriors. Last season, they were 0-3 in game threes with some really ugly losses as well, but they were able to come back and with Steve Carrot, which we will have to talk about as well. And, and, you know, best wishes to him. It's unfortunate news about his health. But I, I did think that uh, Mike Brown coached a nice game, especially in the third quarter after Bob Myers joked with him at halftime that he was going to replace him with Ron Adams if they uh, kept giving up so many points. The definitive stretch of this game from the Warriors' perspective, and Portland played fabulously for the first 30 minutes, was the very end, starting at 5.40 of the third quarter, when oftentimes Steve Kerr starts a little bit after that, going to his bench and pulling Draymond Green, pulling Klay Thompson to get them ready to start the fourth quarter. Mike Brown, partially because they were playing well and partially because he just was feeling it, he kept all of those guys in. So they actually ran a lineup of Curry, Thompson... 
Iguodala, Draymond Green, and JaVale McGee, who was huge in this game. And they had a, I think it was a 14-point deficit, went on a 17-4 to run right towards the end of the third quarter, and actually took the lead in that point. And while it ended up being nick and nip and tuck the rest of the way, there is a very good argument to be made that Brown's comfortability playing the starters more heavily and to, to really roll the hot hand instead of Steve Kerr, who's pretty diligent about rest, might have opened the door for this comeback in the first place. Yeah, and it wasn't even, I mean, the most anyone played was Clay Thompson at 41 minutes. So it wasn't like too ridiculous of a minutes load for a playoff game when they've had two days of rest in each game. But it was more the willingness to just keep that hot unit together and then kind of scrounge by for the first half of the fourth quarter when he knew that Portland would be going to their bench as well and you mentioned McGee and he has been fantastic defensively in this series which I was shocked by he actually has held the Blazers to 4 of 14 shooting at the rim when he's been in the vicinity during the season he was over 50 percent in that metric he's blocked a bunch of shots and what I was most impressed by was I I, we talked about this at halftime on the Twitter NBA show to watch for it because Mike Brown uh, loves to show uh, uh, and hard hedge on the pick and roll. They actually ended, started trapping with JaVale McGee, of all people, and McGee showed impressive mobility. And I think that's easier for him as a pick and roll defender because he's got to do one thing, really, and it's just get up there and slide with this guy instead of having to hedge and you know fake towards the guy and kind of stay on the axis between the the roller and the ball handler and the nuances now it's just hey get out there use your physical skills and he caused some major problems uh, with those traps as uh the warrior defense really brought it in the second half holding portland to only 46 points one other kind of takeaway from this before we i mean we could talk about the blazers plenty more that was notable for me is that for the first 30 minutes neither steph curry nor clay thompson was playing particularly well offensively clay had some moments defensively but the warriors were able to rely on them a little bit more in the comeback i don't think they would have made it without those guys and one of the benefits of doing locked on warriors is that i I pull some crazy stats sometimes too from this game one JaVale McGee's net rating was I think it was plus 65.6 in this game which is ludicrous and Draymond Green contested 22 shots which is on the higher side of what I've seen this year yeah that that is pretty crazy he was excellent down the end and for the Blazers Nurkic was plus 80 did give them a presence early on Uh, I thought his screening was good and he had uh, 11 rebounds in his 17 minutes but you know looked to kind of be uh, only was able to play a couple of stints and and didn't really give them that much as the game went on and then Lillard and McCollum who were unbelievable in that first half I mean they combined for like close to 50 points I think in that first half and then really slowed down finished with 31 and 32 but both shot identical 10 out of 23 from the field and uh, had some ugly turnovers CJ in particular in, in the second half which is something that he referenced in uh the post game Noah Vonley actually gave them some okay minutes had some nice tip dunks uh, got on the offensive glass but he's just doesn't have the versatility and the intelligence level on either end really I think to be you know a premium type of player in the playoffs someone that they trust uh again the lack of shooting from Harkless and Aminu was a problem Evan Turner as well. They were just able to help off of those guys too much. Alan Crabb, to me, has had a very disappointing series. Only six points in this one, only 23 minutes. You would hope that if they were going to play him, at least he could hit some shots, space the floor out uh, on some of those flare screens that they like to run. Uh, but he And then he got torched by Steph Curry at the end of the game for two isolation buckets. I actually, I liked that, that they ISOed Steph 
against a weaker perimeter defender instead of just getting the switch with the big which they do a lot of times uh and vonley actually was pretty good switching out so they, they went to crab and steph iced the game with uh two tough iso jumpers uh, against crab uh so he's had a disappointing season certainly uh compared to the 18 million dollar year contract that he received in the offseason something else we should talk about is that use of nurkic has already been ruled out for game four that is a very good decision i felt that he shouldn't have played in the series in the first place just because of unnecessary risk and with the overall outcome pretty much settled even if the you know even if it's a, a sweep or not a sweep you, there's no ben, real benefit to having him out there yeah i think that's right i mean they were never going to win this series i mean you have to kind of I know he probably really wanted to play and I know that the Blazers you know this idea of like being realistic I mean Damon CJ a very proud player Stotts is a proud coach this idea that oh we're just going to give up in the series we have no chance but you know that said they have no chance in the series I mean these have been pretty favorable situations for them with Durant Livingston and Barnes all out and instead Pat McCaw has played really well in these last two games probably his two best games of the season he had some key offensive rebounds late he had uh, three steals has had some impressive drives too that i really like but i mean the blazers especially with nurkic you know not close to 100 in this game not playing in the first two I and mean, they're, they're just not there i mean this is not even like close to the warriors best best team uh with kd out and you know i, I think the warriors approach of being extremely conservative with durant barnes and livingston has also paid off do you want to talk uh, a little bit about li- Kerr? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we should. Uh, for those who, who have missed it, the issue with Kerr, it was the mysterious circumstances on Saturday night when it was revealed that he would not coach that night. He apparently had been feeling uh, symptoms, wasn't sure, they said initially, if it was related to his back surgery now they're of the belief that it is. He had a press conference today at the Warriors team hotel. And, you know, it seems that he still is in terrible pain from that back surgery that he had in the summer of 2016. And the plan now, he will not coach game four. And, you know, he's not going to be in and out and leaving the group in limbo. So unless he gets back to the point where he feels symptom-free, I think for quite some time, uh, that he's not going to be back to coach because he doesn't want to be going in and out. And so they are lucky that they have a coach of uh, Mike Brown's experience. And you hope that the system that they have built uh, will really help. And, And, you know, I do think that Brown he i think goes to a little bit more kind of playoff tactics than kerr does in terms of just like playing guys more minutes going to more kind of basic offense at times uh especially at the end of games and i think that actually could help the warriors in yeah, some I, ways I, I don't think he um, would play the james michael mcadoo anderson verjao type of stuff like if it really did come down to it i don't think that's in his in his nature as much as it was for kerr the kumbaya no. stuff yeah, no, I I think that that's right, but I mean, more for Kerr, I just feel bad for him personally. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he, I do think he is the second best coach in the NBA. What he has helped build in Golden State, the culture has really been outstanding, and just for him not to be a part of the, this great team and, and a part of this run as a competitor, you know what he must be going through has got to be very difficult. And I hope that he can find some way to find some relief. And and he, I mean, you get the impression though that it's one of these things where the intense stress of coaching, the amount of time just that you're staying up, the lack of sleep during the playoffs, all that is uh, starting to get difficult. And I think, you know, if he can't give that kind of effort uh, and knows that he can't, uh, it pains him to do so. But, you know, the fact that he's stepping aside, you know, indicates to me that he's in difficult straits right now. So people have asked a lot on the Tour NBA show, how does this affect them if he cannot return? I don't think it will affect them 
that much but we'll see you know I mean Kerr has had some pretty good adjustments during series but they also have a great staff that is empowered as well you know Ron Adams another really you know one of the most respected assistants uh in the NBA and uh Jaron Collins is a good mind as well so I, they do have a very solid group there and you know I don't expect it to be a major problem for Golden State but we'll see I mean I think it's more at this point kind of the emotional leadership uh, for Kerr and, and that he might be a little bit better there where and kind of keeping everyone engaged as opposed to and, and uh, Draymond Green in particular I think you know can kind of go off the rails a little bit without Kerr around so we'll see what ends up happening here I mean uh but I, I especially just because they're so much more talented than everyone else I, I don't think it's going to affect them too badly it's just another part of this story and Kerr in his message to the team basically said like you guys know what to do and it seems like he's certainly going to be a voice in the planning process when possible it's probably not going to be as much of an in-person presence in that way but we'll, we'll see what he can provide and that's why they added Mike Brown it was a part of Marcus Thompson's piece that kind of revealed the extended nature of this on Saturday on Saturday night after the game kind of rocked this part of the the basketball world was that, you know, Mike Brown, part of the reason they brought him in was because they wanted somebody to replace Luke Walton, who had a coaching experience under the auspices of the idea that maybe this was going to happen again. All right, let's get to Boston and, and Chicago now. Uh, two games played in this series since we last checked in. It certainly looked a lot different. News came down, surprise news that Rajon Rondo had a fracture in his thumb, also this wrist injury he's been dealing with. And so he's been kind of walking around with his thumb in a splint uh, or a sweet cutoff uh, short sleeve suit (laughs) to uh, game three and uh, also attempted to trip Jay Crowder from the bench and got fined $25,000. But Rondo, shockingly, was unbelievable in the first two games of the series, and Chicago was hopeless with him off the floor in those two games. They completely dominated but I am not sure whether, you know, he would have made that huge of a difference. I mean, they got killed in game two, in game three. So you probably wouldn't think that he's going to make up for like 25 points or whatever it was. Uh, and then in, in game four, it was a little bit closer at times. But, you know, Boston did break out to a 20 point lead in the first half again and ended up winning comfortably again. Um, so to me, this these two games in Chicago were exactly what I expected this series to look like. But it took some adjustments by Brad Stevens that, that I thought were. Uh, very very good and were things that I think in large part we talked about as potential adjustments uh, after game two is over the biggest one of those getting Isaiah Thomas way out on the floor in pick and roll making Robin Lopez defend in space and indeed they were able to basically play him off the floor yeah Lopez I don't think he played at all in the fourth quarter he just has struggled to to find that place and a big part of that is is you know getting Isaiah in space but also Al Horford just making it impossible to really have a place to hide Lopez especially that it, it coincided with Boston going smaller, playing Gerald Green instead of Amir Johnson. It took away the hiding place. Robin Lopez has been a wonderful offensive rebounder in these playoffs. Has made a major difference. Has made a major difference for Chicago. And while they have other options like Cristiano Felicio, who picked up four fouls in the first half and then barely played in the second, if he played at all, I don't even remember him. He did not play at all in the second half, yeah. which was a mistake. A f- uh, one of a few that Fred Hoiberg made. Uh, but so I think that Boston did a nice job of kind of realizing the tactical advantages that they had and something that I don't think it was an adjustment it was more an adaptation due to circumstance but a a move that really paid dividends for Brad Stevens was Isaiah Thomas came out really flat to start the third quarter he also picked up foul was in was in foul trouble and 
Stevens sat him earlier, sat him for a couple minutes, kind of let him get himself right. And not only did Thomas look better after that, but it allowed him to have a shorter rest in the fourth quarter. And I think that helped Boston get control late. Yeah, it did. And and, I mean, when Thomas came back in, Chicago roared out of the gates in that third quarter. And it was really the only time in these two games, Chicago, that they found anything offensively. And what they were doing was small, small pick and roll basically every single time down the court getting Thomas uh, the Celtics switched it a little bit too much another thing that was interesting was the Bulls shockingly went to Isaiah Cannon uh, who basically was inactive the game before has essentially hasn't played since like January or February and was shooting 27% on three he was brought in to sort of just be like a non-ball handling gunner at point guard but he clearly was the best option he was plus 11 I went four of ten three of seven on threes hit a, a pick and pop three and it, you know, we'll talk about the Bulls' uh, other point cards in a second. It wasn't good, uh, but it was uh, an inspired move. But then you also had a guy who hadn't played in months playing 34 minutes in a playoff game, and then he kind of wore down a, a little bit. Uh, so then the Celtics, actually, they brought in Marcus Smart, which really helped. Smart, who wasn't guarded in the first two games, uh, by going a little bit smaller, they were able to get... Uh, more ball handling on the floor, play him off the ball more. He was less of an offensive liability in this one and getting at him as another guy who could guard Butler and wear him down, be strong in the post really worked pretty well. And also even just getting Thomas off the floor, they at least were able to stabilize their defense temporarily uh, because they didn't have anywhere to attack with those plays. And, you know, the Bulls don't have anywhere to go other than just, you know, Dwayne Wade or Jimmy Butler trying to ISO essentially at this point. Uh, So, and then Thomas came back in and he absolutely dominated late in the third quarter uh and then early in the fourth quarter as well setting up guys like Olenek down low blowing past Lopez out on the floor blowing past Kanan uh and then you know for the Bulls Jimmy Butler like he can't do all that he needs to do offensively with Rondo out of the game and defend Thomas as well and play 46 minutes as he did in this game as well he never came out in the second half and predictably uh ran out of gas late it's one of the challenges that Hoiberg's going to have to deal with. And, and there are some people who are like, oh, yeah, how are you going to how are you going to play, you know, all these crappy point guards? And when you have Jimmy Butler there and I am an advocate for the idea of playing Butler, Wade and one of Zipser or Valentine. But you can't do that for anything close to 48 minutes. I wouldn't even do it at all in the first three quarters unless there's like a stretch where you just need to put a fire out, you know, very, very briefly because Jimmy Butler is playing too many minutes. And I think that's a, a good lead in for the the just the cavalry of horrors that was every other Bulls point guard. Michael Carter Williams was awful. And I, I mean, it's not like there are other options other than Cannon, which was such an absolute surprise, were really any better. Jaron Grant was was just a non-factor. Well, he played four minutes. That's not even a Keith Bogans. I don't even know what the word for that is. Yeah, it's like the half Bogans. He started the game, played four minutes, and then never was inserted again. Uh, was negative 10 during that time. 0 for 3 from the field. Carter Williams had two turnovers and two fouls. In his eight minutes, he was negative 11. I mean, those guys are probably getting a little bit too much crap because they, they missed some shots during that period. And it wasn't all their fault, but yeah, they certainly they still did not good. play well. No, no. And, and then uh, Hoiberg also uh, unearthed Joffrey Laverne, uh, a... Uh, move I'm sure you're quite in favor of Danny yeah I like that the Twitter NBA show is revealing the the players that I dislike that we don't talk about on the show I absolutely 
think Joffrey Laverne is terrible. Yeah, no, you've you've talked about him being bad all year, though. Yeah, uh, but when that's he was more on passion, OKC, but... the, when they were playing him and Cantor together, yep. I remember you like completely railing about it. Yep, and I was right. But so the the point with Hoiberg is, I, I understand that the kind of trial by fire with the point guards that's not a problem. But we talked about with a couple other teams the idea of just playing your best guys, and I think D'Antoni has done a really good job of this. Hoiberg needs to do that with his centers. You know, Cristiano Felicio, interesting option, does a good job. Portis, hey, if you want to use him for limited minutes, Robin Lopez. Yeah, he, he and Miritich actually closed the game, Portis and Miritich. Yeah, and so just go roll with your best guys. I don't don't think you should play Jimmy Butler's 46 minutes, but, you know, you use the guys who, who, who you think are capable of playing minutes. And other than that, you know, especially Felicio had four fouls. What's the big deal if he fouls out, especially if you're not going to play him in the fourth quarter anyway? Well, and I know that the goal of the Bulls wasn't to win this year and that they wanted to move towards the future, but trading McDermott and Gibson and a second rounder for Cameron Payne, who is gloriously inactive throughout this entire series, although who knows, maybe they'll give him a shot. Uh, He was so, so bad in his regular season cameo. Uh, Not really that much better when he played in the D-League with the Windy City Bulls either. And... So now, you know, they don't have Gibson, who the one guy who playing at center, and of course, Gibson never played at center this year and never played together with Miritich, which would have been their best front court lineup. We never saw that at all. But now Hoiberg doesn't have a single experienced big man who can play any kind of pick and roll defense. Felicio comes the closest, but as you mentioned, he's inexperienced. He had those four fouls in the first half uh, still should have gotten more time I, I thought uh in the second half but you know and then the, the flaws in the roster as well I mean Rondo can't shoot like the fact that he's played this well nobody saw that coming uh Valentine yeah you know it makes sense because he can at least help out their offense which has been the big problem in these games in Chicago by the way uh and the Bulls were five of 24 on threes in this one which was pretty ugly uh yeah so if Valentine plays then you've got two of your three perimeter players who can't stop anybody in, in Wade and Valentine. So any kind of pick and roll action with a small, you, you, you're not going to be able to defend Thomas either. Uh, and then Wade really, I thought, struggled in this one, played 38 minutes, only got up 12 shots, only one free throw attempt, which is, is not good. Uh, I thought that he was not aggressive enough um, in getting to the room, but that guys like Avery Bradley, smart, like those guys have, uh, Jay Crowder, I mean, those guys have a ton of energy and Dwayne Wade is not good enough anymore to beat really good defense uh, unless he's really hitting his mid-ranger which you know he, he hasn't been and Chicago uh, really after going crazy on contested shots in Boston the first two games has totally fallen back to earth so I, I think the biggest thing that my takeaway here though Isaiah Thomas completely dominating the way he did, even though he was only one and nine on threes, uh, 33 points plus 17, 12 to 13 from the foul line, uh, seven assists. And then Boston's defense finally stopping the Bulls. Oh, you know who we also need to talk about is Al Horford. He was fantastic in both of these, uh, these games in Chicago. He's been the guy that played Robin Lopez off the floor. And he's also been better defensively. I think he's been well, better actually, on the defensive. Well, actually, no, I, I wouldn't. I would actually wouldn't say that to any, Well, maybe to some degree. I think the combination. It's more Thomas than him, but he's but he was great as more of a traditional role guy. I thought he would be more in pick and pop, but he makes the right decision. He can finish. Like he's very good. Yeah, I, th- I think he's been huge. And Gerald Green had a really nice first half in this game. He was fell off a little bit in the second half, but they need somebody generally to step up offensively. And in this one, it was Gerald Green. Yeah, he had 16 in the first half, uh, was four of nine from three from the game, had a nice dunk on Dwayne Wade, 18 points, uh, as you know, Jalen Brown has now been out of the rotation completely in these two games in Chicago. Uh, Green has stepped up, and, and he is... 
the most threatening shooter probably that Boston has outside of maybe Thomas uh, in terms of both his ability to get his shot off. You got to close hard on him. And I think just how hot he can get, teams are really worried about that. And uh, he played a a really nice game. And, uh, you know, I thought Horford also... Uh, was excellent defensively uh they've stopped getting completely killed on the offensive glass uh they've stopped giving up a ton of mid-rangers to lopez as well but uh, i mean if you had to say like how how much the bulls miss rondo you think they could have won one of these games that they had rondo sure i think they could have i mean he's a lot better than the many of the alternatives that they have it's no guarantee that he would have played as well as he did in games one and two for any future game especially considering his precedent but he did help them a lot he gave them another playmaker i thought it also helped keep jimmy butler fresh and kept their offense moving so yeah i think they could have i i said this before you know i even without rondo i think i probably would have made the celtics favorites in both these games but having somebody as the favorite and saying they would have won are two different things yeah and boston and you mentioned the pace i think that's a key point only 87 possessions in this game which is extremely slow and the bulls don't have anyone who can push the pace obviously uh without rondo that really hurts so they're getting nothing in transition boston killed them in fast break points and they don't have any kind of pace in the half court either i mean rondo at least can run a pick and roll get into the lane do a midget dribble come out the other side just like make you guard in more different areas i think he was instrumental in getting lopez a lot of those opportunities for his uh uh, mid-range jump shot so yeah i think they did really really miss him and then on defense too i mean they don't have anyone else who can defend point guards well other than him and while he's been really bad since the acl he's been a lot better in those first two games but they also have to consider that boston made some adjustments they have some really talented players and the bulls were playing over their heads uh but now i mean we talked about we gave boston i think a 20 percent chance of winning the series not knowing that rondo would be out going back to chicago and now i think boston is totally in control uh anything that chicago can do here to try and respond that we haven't talked about yet not really i mean i think they should play their play their centers more get a little bit more coaching rotations and pray that somehow they're going to the nba is going to start calling carrying every single time it happens <laughs> i mean yeah you know isaiah thomas might carry uh but fred hoiberg i mean just probably like the most tone deaf press conference ref bitching which he brought up completely unbidden by the way he was not asked anything about isaiah thomas's carrying shockingly enough uh and you know he did give respect to thomas as a, as a person for what he's going through and, and what a competitor he is but and, and others have complained about thomas carrying as well and you know on some of those kind of smitty moves that he does his crossover like he comes close to it but all right the referees are never going to call carrying more than maybe once a game so you're going to get your 25k on like one carrying call potentially and it just sounds like you're complaining too i mean like of all the things like carrying that's like like discontinuing the dribble like what is this 1970 like it's it's like my dad would like try and call a carry on me when i would like you know because when he grew up you could only just like you know basically mash the ball into the ground with your fist to dribble every time you know you couldn't even like you know put your hand on the side of the ball i'm like dad you know they don't call it that way anymore so this is like it kind of reminds me of that yeah i don't don't really have anything further to add except maybe maybe it was also maybe it makes his gm his his front front office happier so so be it yeah i mean the two things uh, i don't know if it's two but I'll, i'll just list them off here uh lopez you got to just play him number i mean he they need him offensively they need him on the offensive glass they need him to beat the beat them up a little bit um you know i think uh just not guarding marcus smart i didn't think they did as good a job of that paul zipser who didn't do anything in this game uh was 0 for 2 in 16 minutes i mean he's got to play more i think they just need more versatility um i mean people are saying like like chris max was being like oh i think rondo is going to play in game five like haven't heard anything to indicate that uh because 
he you know supposedly is out until the next series at least uh per casey johnson's reporting we'll see maybe he'll like go back out there kind of weird that you know it wasn't like this injury that he had supposedly it's been like an issue for a while and so he was able to play in the first two games and now he's not able to play in this one like this you know he's got this wrist thing as well it's all been a little bit odd as uh it often can be with rondo's injuries not saying there's anything untoward there but you know some of the stories don't seem to add up too much uh maybe it's just uh, inconsistencies in the reporting more than inconsistencies with rondo so you know other than that there's not a ton here i mean this this series feels a lot like you know some of those uh, maybe like golden states like 2015 series against memphis where it's just like all right you know you kind of mucked things up for us it was difficult but we've got the size and the skill advantage and you know we're spreading you out i I mean boston didn't they made eight out of 22 threes in the first half and then they only went like two out of 15 in the second half and they still uh because chicago can't hit some threes either uh won this one going away so i expect the boston garden crowd to be into it and uh, Boston, I, I see this going six, frankly. I do too. And you think about, we mentioned where this was before. To, to be saying that now is, is pretty incredible. All right, before we move on here, a word from our friends at Indochino. When I was a lawyer, I had to go to court pretty often. Had to wear suits and you know first when i didn't have any money coming right out of law school i went to men's warehouse and then you know i started trying to dress a little bit better i went to department stores i even got a really expensive made to measure suit that was like over a thousand dollars i wish i'd known about indochino at that time because with indochino you can get a premium made to measure suit for just 389 dollars at indochino.com when you enter my code capspace at checkout that's 50 percent off the regular price for a made to measure premium suit shipping is free and not only are you getting the suit made to measure, but you can customize anything about it. They have hundreds of fabrics, hundreds of patterns, uh, the linings. I've got like this sweet maroon lining in one of my suits that, that I think looks pretty cool. And because I'm a really cool person, you should listen to me. Uh, but maybe the, maybe the better way to put it is that Indochino can even make me look cool. Is that is that better, Danny? Yeah, I, I do think that's better. It's a little bit more self-aware. <laughs> uh in any event they make shirts as well that, that fit really well we actually uh i was wearing my indochino suit on one of the, the twitter nba show broadcasts that we did last week so all you got to do you can either go into one of, the, one of their nine north american showrooms or you can submit your body measurements which they show you how to do online and then three to four weeks later you get your totally customized suit at indochino.com promo code capspace that's indochino.com promo code capspace where do you want to go next here should we do uh milwaukee toronto yeah, let's do it. Another fun series that certainly has changed tenor a couple times. Milwaukee absolutely stomped Toronto in game three. And then, you know, game four ended up being, we talked about it. We did that one. It was one we we're really looking forward to on the Twitter NBA show about how game four was going to be definitive in this series because either Milwaukee was going to get a 3-1 stranglehold on it or Toronto was going to get a 2-2 margin with two games at home. Yeah, this game was just an absolute bloodbath. It was close late, and then Toronto pulled away on the strength of DeMar DeRozan, who's really the only player who had an efficient offensive game. He and Tony Snell really were the only players uh, who were efficient in this one. Uh, but it was uh, 87-76, and this is now, I think, like the fourth or fifth score we've had in the 80s in, in this series. And it, so a 91 offensive rating for Toronto, 80 for Milwaukee. Milwaukee turned it over on 22% of, of their possessions, which is absolutely horrendous. And, I mean, there are just some ghastly shooting lines in this one. 
Giannis, six out of 19 in, in his 42 minutes, only uh, two of four from the foul line for 14 points. Chris Middleton had a horrendous game on both ends. He was four of 13, only had 10 points and really lost guys defensively as well. Brogdon uh, couldn't really get much done. Delvadova, Mike Beasley, who uh, was three of three on threes the previous game, uh, he did nothing. He was two of nine from the field in 15 minutes. Uh, a much more bite Michael Beasley line. So uh, Thon Maker, I thought was okay for the Bucks, uh, but really uh, the only Buck who played well was uh, Snell, who hit all five of the Bucks three point attempts. He was five of ten. Rest of team o of eleven, and they also went eleven out of eighteen from the foul line and just could not score in the fourth quarter. And the Raptors at least got. Got some offense in the second half from Lowry, DeRozan, and uh, the unlikely Jonas Valanciunas, who did not start the game but finished it. And one of the most surprising dynamics of this game was Serge Ibaka was absolutely phenomenal in that first half. He was defensively making a huge impact was doing well offensively and then in the second half I don't remember exactly when I think it was in the second quarter when he got hit in the face by Thon Maker's elbow trying to do a euro step but whether that was a causal factor or not Ibaka was just jacking up shots in that third quarter and then they didn't really need him in that sense and then his defense wasn't nearly as strong so they went back to Valanciunas and Valanciunas was doing a nice job getting the Bucks off their rhythm and contributing on both ends of the floor which he hadn't done basically at all in the first three games of the series. Ibaka came out there in the third quarter uh, slightly parched shall we say uh because i think he took maybe like seven of their first nine shots each of which was either a pick and pop or a spot up jumper and he didn't make any of them and just kept shooting i mean you know at some point and they were all like 18 feet or further it wasn't like these were just pick and pop these were deep yeah, I mean, and you know, at some point, a little discretion required. So Casey went away with uh, from him, uh, went to Valanciunas. Uh, another guy who was absolutely awesome in this game defensively was P.J. Tucker. And I thought that Milwaukee's offense in the fourth quarter was extremely unimaginative. They, Giannis does not have a chance to score on Tucker one-on-one. They kept asking him to do that, and it, he was unable to. Uh, just kept stoning him in the post. And I think there's two things they got to do when Tucker is out there. Number one, they got to run some small, small pick and rolls to get Giannis onto DeRozan. I think that's really the guy they need to be attacking one-on-one, uh, which they haven't done at all in this series. And then they also need to just not guard Tucker on the other end because Tucker his, hit a couple of threes in this series, but over overall has been very reluctant to shoot uh, in this one he was just 0 for 2 in 28 minutes I mean you got if especially when DeRozan Lowry those guys are, are starting to hurt you uh then you really got to say hey we're gonna just and, and it's not really in the Bucks nature to do that they're gonna kind of just tilt everything be aggressive and uh you know rather than hey we'll just help off of this one guy but I think they need to go more in the, that direction uh how was it that Lowry and DeRozan were finally able to be effective against this Bucks defense after they just could not score i think they had 74 points in game three I think a lot of it for DeRozan was just him being able to actually get to his spots for the first time. And he was just using his physicality and they had better spacing. They were playing Norman Powell. They were playing guys that you had to defend differently. And I, I thought that all of that helped them operate and that the Bucks, you know, it wasn't, I, I don't know that their coverages were necessarily worse, but I did think that their execution was a little bit less intense in that f- game four than it was in game three. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I thought the Raptors looked better, maybe not down the end. I think, you know, DeRozan hit some hard shots but they at least early in the game were setting their screens much higher out so again it makes and in the middle of the floor so that makes the trapping 
a lot harder. We noted that in game three, the Bucks increased the aggressiveness even more, bringing another guy over to prevent them shorting the pick and roll. Instead, they were making Greg Monroe defend in space. He looked like a liability for the first time. Lowry even was able to get to the rim and finish it a few times. He actually made six two-pointers, which uh, you don't see as much of from him anymore so I, I thought that was part of it the additional spacing starting Powell I mean Powell went from basically not playing at all to playing 34 minutes in this one he started he made three of the Raptors five three-pointers uh they went five out of 22 on threes as well the teams combined for 10 out of 41 on three-pointers which of course was terrible but Powell was three out of three those were three big shots from the corner uh so I, I really liked them going there and yeah, I mean, those are the things that I really could point to. You mentioned DeRozan getting to his spots. I thought he was better against Snell. Uh, he also really uh, caused some problems for Malcolm Brogdon in this one. Brogdon did not do a good enough job, in my opinion, of really getting into DeRozan using his uh, strength. Instead, it was kind of backing off and letting DeRozan shoot over him a little bit. So that that was an issue and then yeah the spacing helped a lot too you know where there's plays where DeRozan was able to go down and and even just get into the rim and dunk it which you know again the, the Bucks did not have the level of help and and with Tucker out there for 28 minutes you know there are guys to help off of um I still think that they could do even better by just playing Corey Joseph and uh, Dylan Wright less only just playing either of those guys probably Joseph when Lowry's off the floor and Lowry played 43 minutes so uh and Joseph only got eight but uh Joseph and Wright were a combined negative 14 in this one and uh, some of that also like I've, I've said the idea of starting PJ Tucker and I, I still stand by that whether or not they start uh, Ibaka at the five just because I think he does such a good job on Giannis but if Milwaukee starts to treat him differently offensively then maybe you think about staying with what they do right now but i would make them i would make milwaukee do the adjustment before i before i backed off of a, a possible thing that could really help them to me though i mean the bucks got to get better offensively because oh, yeah. they still held down the raptors you know the raptors shot 26 mid-rangers and went eight out of 26 on those didn't get a ton of shots at the room 14 and 25 and then the bucks it's been weird how this series is yo-yoed back and forth the Bucks now couldn't make a shot at the rim themselves. They were 14 out of 30. Uh, they were like, uh, I want to say like 16 out of 35 in game two. And then, you know, the Raptors couldn't make a shot at the rim in game three. So it was has really gone back and forth quite a bit. And they just, they got to get Giannis the ball on the move. I mean, the pace of this game was glacially slow. That really hurts Giannis. Giannis also has just really struggled to finish at the rim, even in transition at times in this series. Uh, and he... This has shown that he's got a ways to go offensively. You know, if he can get out and transition, make energy plays, you know, that's one thing. Uh, but especially when he's guarded by someone real good like Tucker, I mean, they got to find a way to get him some better looks against some smaller defenders. But and maybe get some more space on the floor too but you know i'm not sure how they do that i mean they, they started thon i thought he was good uh he and monroe basically split the center minutes uh, not a ton you can do to change the rotation i mean toledovich has been awful in this series i don't know if i would go back to him the one thing i could point to also is middleton four out of 13 only took three three-pointers all of which he missed i think utilizing him in more of a spot-up role could be useful rather than giving him the ball in his hands to try to go to work and they're going to need more offensively from brogdon and Del over to those guys uh combined for only four points in uh basically playing you know splitting the point guard duties so four points in 48 minutes from a position that's not acceptable either and while we know that milwaukee is certainly capable of winning in toronto they already have done it in this series i would say that winning in game five is absolutely imperative because otherwise you have to go back to back home and road not back to back in terms of games on consecutive days but you have to win home and road to to win the series i mean lowry and derozan are so inconsistent and derozan 
Jefferson was incredible with his 33 points in that game but those guys are so inconsistent uh that I, I mean I think it's more likely than not that Toronto's still not gonna be able to score efficiently on this Buck team and if that's the case then you know it could be anyone's game and especially if the Bucks can get hot from the perimeter I think if they're if neither if all these games were being played at a neutral side I think it would be pretty neutral I, I do give the Raptors some credit for being a home court advantage but still I mean this Raptors team can lay some absolute eggs in the playoffs I mean you remember we thought they were totally out of the woods after winning in game three last year against the Pacers they got smashed I think in game four is one of the two of those and then they were down 15 going into the fourth quarter of game five at home and barely came back and win with Paul George out of the game that they had a miracle comeback and then even in game seven it ended up being close they got smashed in game six on the road i think as well uh, so i'm not gonna say they're out of the woods yet i do think they'll win the series uh, uh they this was a great performance by them the intensity level defensively that they showed in that game was absolutely off the charts uh and, and i really enjoyed the game as well despite it being low scoring because both teams played so hard the whole time but you know i'm not ready to declare the bucks dead in this series in the slightest even though toronto are favorites yeah, I think that's totally fair. Do you want to do a faster one and do Cavs Pacers? Yeah, we'll hit Cavs Pacers and Atlanta Wizards, and then we got to do uh, a bigger, bigger segment on San Antonio and Memphis. Cavs Pacers, I mean, it was one of the more competitive sweeps that you'll ever see. They won the series in four games despite only outscoring the Pacers by 16 points over the course of the entire series. I mean, we were doing the Twitter NBA show. For the end of this game, which, uh, you know, really the Pacers stormed back, took a two-point lead. Cleveland's crunch time offense has been, other than in that one game when Kyrie and Love didn't play, it's been the usual shit from them. You know, small, small pick and roll, try to get an ISO. Uh, maybe they'll be playing with the spread floor. Maybe they'll have Thompson out there uh, and not very good. I mean, they scored, I think, four points over like a seven-minute period in the fourth quarter and Indiana actually improbably took a two-point lead and then LeBron James hit an ISO three over Miles Turner to give the Cavs lead for good. And and then when it looked like it was completely over because of a wild sequence where the Pacers were trying to go for a two down three and just lost the ball, J.R. Smith ends up with it with a three point lead and I think it was like 10 seconds to go. And it it would be insane for anybody to do it, but for J.R. Smith, I just had to laugh a little bit. Tries to go behind the back to, I believe it was Kyrie, and Paul George tips the ball, and they get another chance to tie the game. No, no, I don't think he even tipped. So I don't think he even tipped it. I think George was just running next to him. And he just like threw it into like Paul George's butt. Maybe Paul George like kind of reached back with his hand just randomly to knock it away. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a good JR play Smith, by Paul George to stop it for you're, sure. Yeah, you're you're up three. Just accept the foul. You hit one out of two free throws. The game is over. I mean, after and you mentioned that the Pacers just went for a terrible quick two after with like 20 seconds left. Well, they didn't even get so a JR, shot up. Right, right. Yeah, they threw it away. And JR tries this behind the back pass, uh, goes off of Paul George. George gets the ball. Smith has him at, at half court. And again, they are up by three at this point. Smith decides he's going to jump back towards half court to try and intercept a pass from Paul George, who's basically said in the media that he's never, ever going to pass it in a last second situation. Uh, oh, I guess he did pass it when he got double teamed, but he wants to take every last shot at least. Uh, so he just jumps basically out of Paul George's way. Paul George takes one dribble, goes right into a wide open three that could have tied it, and it wasn't even close, and they ended up losing. This and the Oklahoma City game were unbelievable examples of a game that seemed like it was not over in the way that 
we like to, to say, you know, like, oh, there's basically a really low chance of winning, like, done. And just all of a sudden, a team snatches an, a, a fringy chance of victory out of the jaws of certain defeat. So, again, you would have liked to see the Cavaliers, who did leave by 10 in, in the fourth, play a little bit better than this. Uh, how are you feeling about them going forward now after this sweep? Uh, to me, I have been thoroughly unimpressed so far, other than LeBron James, who continues to play at a completely ridiculous level. I feel more confident than I did before that they're going to win the East, but I feel less confident that they are going to win the championship because their defense did not look right other than like a, maybe a 10-minute stretch of this series. And as much yeah, as and they that had... was with Kyrie and Love out of the game too, by Correct. the way. Correct. And while we, we can focus on that big, you know, history tying comeback in game three they gave up 70 to the pacers in the first half of that game 74 in the in the first half of that game three i mean that was and then they didn't even come back with their main guys and then even in this game in lebron 33 points he's got to play 45 minutes again uh the Cavaliers had 11 assists in this game that's not very good uh Kyrie 10 out of 25 for 28 points uh that's not really particularly efficient one out of seven on threes he has not he's looked had some brilliant moments and Irving is kind of a tough player to evaluate visually because you always remember uh his at least on offense because you always remember his really spectacular plays and his one-on-one moves and then it's just you got to look at the stat sheet and see whether he made enough of those shots or not because so many of his shots are hard uh you know if you're just watching him it always seems kind of like he's playing better than he he might be and sometimes he's made a lot of those shots but a lot of times you know he's 10 out of 25 you don't realize it uh, and then k love with two out of 13 in this zero free throw attempts after he'd been effective drawing fouls earlier and as you mentioned their defense was pretty garbage throughout this series so I do feel better about them winning the East because Boston, Toronto, like those teams have not looked good. Uh, Washington took a step back in Atlanta, as we'll talk about it in a little bit. So, and LeBron James got to play 45 minutes every game in the playoffs. Now they do, are going to have all day to rest here, but you'd hope that in a closeout game with half the crowd, their fans, that they could have at least had like you know, one comfortable win in this series um and, and they were unable to do that now for the pacers i mean we'll talk about them a lot more probably this week i think we'll start doing off-season previews on these teams that have lost but for the pacers will this be the last time we see paul george in a pacers uniform I'd say it's more likely than not. You can consult the Kevin Pelton chart, but there are two big factors in this, one of which we'll talk about in a second. One is Paul George's willingness to return to the Pacers, not next season, but to return to the Pacers after next season. And then the second one is the quality of the offers they get. You know, I I, I don't think that teams are going to play such super hardball with him that the Pacers will get it will get tepid enough offers that they'll say well we might as well play out the string i mean we've seen where that goes but then there's also the question of will paul george be able to get an extension because in order for him to really be extendable he has to make an all-nba team this year yeah and i don't think that'll happen now we talked about the possibility that with the award show on june 26th and the draft a uh, prime trading season before that that they might not know if he'd made all nba uh i checked up on that and it does turn out that uh, per a source the teens will be told well before uh that ju- uh june 26th so good luck actually keeping it secret by the way but nonetheless uh the pacers will know whether he's made it or not uh, by the draft if they want to trade him but i think there's also the carrot of number one holding on to him and hoping he makes an All-NBA team next year, in which case they would be able to offer him a five-year deal for over $200 million, And then another team could only offer him 
approximately a four-year deal for 130 million so that's uh you know a pretty darn big 70 million dollar difference uh in what he could get and especially since we're talking about a 46 million dollar salary in the fifth year of that contract uh yeah that's uh, and george doesn't have quite the off-court endorsement money of someone like you know kevin durant is getting 30 million a year reportedly from nike so they could take that gamble or they could even just take the gamble that hey the five if you don't make the all nba team if we just offer you the five-year deal for 175 million instead of the four-year deal for 130 you can get elsewhere that that 40 million dollars you could make in the last year would be enough to make you want to stay as well now he could of course agitate for a trade after either of those two scenarios but the pacers also can just trade him as well and he's locked in for so long that he wouldn't have as much say over his destination so a lot of moving pieces there I do think that Larry Bird seems like the stubborn sort where if he doesn't get like an, what he considers an overwhelming offer and considering that George is rumored to want to go to the Lakers so badly, it seems unlikely that George would kind of informally commit and give assurances the way we saw Kevin Love do in Cleveland that he would stick around. And so that's going to really depress George's market value, much as it did perhaps with DeMarcus Cousins, although George is a better player than Cousins and you know doesn't have the, some of the character issues. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I'm just, it has this feel to me that the offers won't be that good and Bird's just to be like, fuck it, we'll keep them and, and see what happens. Or maybe we'll it, and see how we're doing at least this year. If we're really bad, we'll just trade them at the trade deadline. Or are the offers really going to be so much worse at the trade deadline than they are? I mean, because it could be one of those things like where if the offers aren't that great, you just say, hey, we'll wait until the trade deadline. Either we can get a better offer or, you know, yeah, it might be a worse offer, but it's not good enough to begin with. So, you know, if it's worse, it's worse. It's neither of these are knocking our socks off anyway. Are we ready to move on? Yeah, let's hit this whiz hawks game real quick this was just i think we ended up both taking a nap during the second half of this one so i actually appreciated the fact that atlanta completely destroyed washington the big story out of this one was markeith morris calling paul Millsap a crybaby i personally probably wouldn't want to talk shit after getting completely destroyed as markeith morris has now in back-to-back games by Paul Millsap. In this one, Millsap was spectacular. 12 of 20 from the field, 29 points for him, 14 rebounds, five assists, two blocks. And uh, Markeef was four out of 14 from the field, negative 17, nine points, five fouls in 29 minutes as basically nobody on Washington came to play other than the spectacular John Wall who had maybe one of the most awesome plays I've ever seen that's just going to get lost in this defeat yeah going behind the back to actually elude a defender not as a stylistic thing and then just dunking all over Kent Bazemore was a spectacular sequence and Dennis Schroeder I thought had a really nice game during the time that he was out there Washington I don't think there's much that he could do to prove himself where they're they're gonna treat him totally differently in pick and roll but if he continues he's making shots he was 10 of 22 from the field three of seven from three maybe they'll at least be reluctant or uncomfortable doing it yeah and uh at the half it was an 18 point atlanta lead they busted out 38 to 20 i think wall had 14 of the wizards 20 points uh on his way to uh those 29 and and washington just didn't come to play uh, on either end uh Otto porter continues to not really get free for his shot he had only seven points marcin gortat who played well in the two games in Washington, managed only two points. And we had seen early on in this series that 
Atlanta's starting lineup was getting killed by Washington's starting lineup and that obviously was not the case in that 38 to 20 first quarter you mentioned Schroeder hitting some threes making him pay for going under and it just devolved into extensive garbage time in the second half here. Uh, Torian Prince continues to play well. He had 16 points in 28 minutes, uh, showed some ability getting to the basket in impressive fashion in this series. And, you know, the bench didn't screw it up either, which was not a surprise because Washington's bench really plays well. And Brad Beal really struggled. Oh, six on three, six of 20 from the field and uh they pretty much packed it in so we'll see whether uh, on monday this ends up being a real series or not you'd have to imagine that the wizards could come out a little bit better against the hawks team that has the worst net rating of any playoff team but uh the Wizards aren't that good either you know i think we kind of maybe because it seemed like oh they've got these offensive players and they had two relatively comfortable wins in the first two games that you know they were going to roll in these this series uh and this was a reminder that uh maybe not so fast you know this whiz team isn't that great either even though john wall continues to be you know absolutely awesome in the playoffs so we have one more series before we get to the last one you want to do spurs against the grizzlies and that is the game that was the last of the weekend utah against the clippers the first game that we knew blake griffin was going to be out he got injured in game three is out for the rest of the playoffs due to that big toe issue i would i was honestly surprised that Rudy Gobert came back he didn't look perfect but he moved better than I expected but then because Utah is contractually forbidden from having all five of their best players healthy and active at the same time Gordon Hayward food poisoning didn't play at all in the second half yeah and only nine minutes in the first half for him he had actually left and returned home basically as one out of three in his his nine minutes and I thought that Utah was then going to be in big trouble because that left Luke and Bamute on Joe Johnson I thought Joe Johnson yeah, he was going to feast on some of these bad Clippers defenders on the second unit and with Hayward on the floor and Bob Mute would be guarding him now and Bob Mute could guard Joe Johnson. I tweeted as much during the game and uh, Joe Johnson proved me to be quite incorrect on his way to 28 points on 12 of 17 from the field. And really, you know, it's not like Joe Johnson is getting all these shots in the restricted area, only took two free throws in this game. And that was after he was intentionally fouled late. He's just shooting this incredible percentage on all mid-rangers, his floater. He had this unbelievable left shoulder fadeaway in the fourth quarter as the shot clock was expiring I mean, and was just operating and pick and roll, getting him Bob Mute on his back. And it must be so frustrating to be on the back of someone who's going about one mile an hour the way Joe Johnson is, but he is just so sturdy. And Bob Mute, a really strong defender. And Joe Johnson, uh, you know, I've heard tell that he weighs like over 250. And Bob Mute just couldn't get around him. Uh, and, you know, was Joe was able to create space still on a guy who's really strong himself in Bob Mute. Absolutely massive kind of closing kick to the game for Joe Johnson. In the final seven minutes, Dan Feldman, friend of the podcast, had this as a stat. Joe Johnson created 22 points, 13 scored, and the nine assisted. I think that was two assists to Joe Ingles and one to George Hill. And the Clippers scored 11 points total during those seven minutes. Yeah, I mean, it was really, the uh, other than Joe Johnson just killing them, it was the Clippers on offense that were the, the big disappointment to me. And Jamal Crawford kept them afloat early in the game. He was fantastic with 9 out of 13 shooting 25 points, especially in the second quarter when it looked like the Jazz were going to burst out to a lead. The Clips bench unit actually came back uh, which you without DJ and without Chris Paul in the game. And uh, so he was really good, but they weren't really able to get as much going with Paul in pick and roll. And I thought a very nice adjustment that Quinn Snyder waited until the end of the game to break out. Gobert, I think, was on a minutes limit. That's why he only played 24 minutes. But 
they went with Derek Favors moving his feet out on the floor something that he used to be great at and then with the injuries you didn't think he could do he was feeling good today and he was able to trap get the ball out of Chris Paul's hands and then uh, the other Clippers were unable really to make plays JJ Redick in particular struggled he played I can't remember him ever playing 42 minutes before uh, in his Clippers career but he had 12 points on three of 11 from the field he got thrust and four turnovers so he got put in some situation he was really not comfortable creating off the dribble but at least he got 11 shots. He only had five in game three. Well, and I, I think something we need to talk about was also that Derek Favors was extremely important offensively. And he has what, been all series. He has been yeah. had an underrated offensive series. Seven of 10 from the field, 17 points. Also got to the line, made three free throws. He only had one offensive rebound, but it looks like he was a consistent presence there. And also they got some late offense from Rodney Hood. He made a big three and actually had a shimmy, which I've never seen him do. That was enjoyable. But my big takeaway, from from this game is that while it is far from a sure thing the Clippers are going to need a lot to go right in order to win this series yeah it does I, I, we'll see what Gobert can do I mean I, he didn't seem like the same presence defensively offensively I mean I was shocked he could be as good as he was he was six out of six from the field 15 points in, tw- in his 24 minutes had a couple of offensive rebounds did block a couple of shots but that was really kind of on ball plays um didn't have quite the usual mobility I thought well but, yeah the I mean, play he couldn't it, stick with Ray Felton that was one that stuck with me yeah and not able to have as much of an effect on guys in the mid-range too but still uh to have that kind of an impact after how bad that injury looked and and uh, how bad the reporting was on it initially, I mean, I think he just has done a lot of treatment on it. He healed quickly, and you know, we'll see if he's able to bounce back too because you know he could have some swelling after this performance. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, he and Favors combined to go uh, thirteen of sixteen from the field and had thirty-two points. I mean, that's what really won them the game offensively, and. The Jazz, this was, again, a very slow-paced game. They had 105 points on 89 possessions in this one, so a 118 offensive rating, and that's without Gordon Hayward. And for the Clippers... I thought DeAndre Jordan actually really disappointed me in this game defensively. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would certainly agree with that he, in a couple of different ways. Like it wasn't as much of a deterrent. Also, I thought that him chasing blocks a couple of times helped open up the offensive glass for the Jazz. Yeah, I mean, may, maybe we're being unfair to him because you thought that and I felt he didn't challenge enough shots in the lane. You know, he'll go through <laughs> these times where, uh, you know, he just kind of doesn't jump enough. But I'm talking about plays where he goes in for layups, too, right. you know, not floaters necessarily. And I think that they, you know, Joe Johnson, was just too difficult for them to deal with though I mean it's got to be so frustrating the Raptors certainly uh can relate to this from the 2014 playoffs that and then Utah had enough shooting around him I thought that you know the Clippers just have too many liabilities they went at Jamal Crawford in the post again I mean Jamal Crawford is going to be seeing poor Joe Johnson or poor Jamal Crawford's going to be seeing Joe Johnson in his nightmares and then when they finally did try and double team Joe set up just an incredible cross-court pass to Joe Ingles for a corner three he and Hood excellent spot up shooters and considering who those I mean Joe Ingles is 6'7 Hood 6'8 and he can jump so you've got guys like Crawford and Reddick Ray Felton was in as a defensive replacement as Austin Rivers still has not been able to play with that hamstring uh, although reports are he might be a little bit better for game five but uh, you know I don't want him trying to guard Joe Johnson either he's gonna be too small for him and same thing for Hayward but yeah try, those short arm guys old guards trying to close out uh just not good enough defensively and you know I mean I think 
the Clippers looked like at the very start of the series that they could cause the Jazz problems offensively and they found a way to get Hayward going in game three even though the, the Clips won that game on the back of Chris Paul being absolutely unbelievable uh, Hayward had 40 points 21 in, in the first quarter uh, so I think they've kind of solved him if Hayward can get back healthy and then you know they're running Paul Pierce out there most spades I mean it's just hard to see how they can really stop the Jazz uh, and you know Gobert's roles as well I mean the big guys have been lighting it up uh, so really unless Chris Paul can be just incredibly brilliant instead of just regular brilliant like he was in this game you're right I mean I do feel like the Jazz have the advantage but of course you know that home court advantage for the Clippers is big and then we don't know where Hayward is going to be I and mean, he was getting IVs all day he's probably going to still be getting them the, the next game in this series or we're every other day now we're in this series right I believe so I think they play on Tuesday. I think it's Tuesday, then Friday. I believe that's what it is. Yeah. Well, so I, I could very easily see Hayward being on a minutes limit in the next game as well. You know, it's tough for him to get back and get hydrated. Uh, so uh, there's another point I wanted to make, yeah, which is sure. most Bates probably not the answer at power forward definitely probably not in this series and definitely not if they make it to the next round and when you look at doc rivers rotation in this game without you know without austin Rivers, sure but wes johnson was exhumed but only played three minutes paul pierce played 12 minutes and then most Bates played 20 two of those three guys are not the answer against a good team and the third almost definitely isn't either yeah, I mean, I think, I, I just don't understand. They made a much larger investment in Wes Johnson, six, $6 million a year for three years, the full mid-level exception, than they did Paul Pierce, who is at the mini mid-level, than they did Mo Spates, than they even did in Mute, who's only got the biannual. So with that being the case, like why, and they played fine with Wes Johnson on the floor there when their bench unit was successful earlier in the year. Wes was a part of that. I know he's in Rivers' doghouse now, but... I mean, he seems like he would be one of the better options on Joe Johnson, even, you know, as, as a guy who can at least, you know, pretend to make some shots, get out in transition, which, you know, nobody goes in transition in this series at all. But Wes had like one fast break for a, a, a foul. So, I mean, I think he's got to give him a shot. They got to get some more athleticism on the floor as they always have. But I mean, these Utah wings are a tough matchup due to their size for the likes of uh, Reddick and Crawford. That's for sure call it instinct but if he's able to play i think that we're going to see a closing lineup of chris paul one of the two shooting guards austin rivers and Mute, and deandre jordan in the later games of the series no i you you would imagine so although, i mean coming back from a hamstring injury and playing a ton of minutes has got to be pretty difficult even if you are imbued with the amazing rivers blood yeah can't uh, keep the ferrari in the garage man i mean i think actually you know the clips are no worse off without blake offensively i would say uh at least in their main units if they go to the bench they probably are but i think they miss him more defensively at this point which is a surprise given his reputation earlier in the career he's not a rim protector but as the league has gotten more for mobility guys who can switch uh, griffin actually defended joe johnson pretty effectively because you know griffin's one of the few guys that johnson can't just like go right through with his size so uh you know i think they're really missing him more there and for blake i mean we haven't talked about this at all because that news came down on, on friday and this plantar plate uh, injury to his right big toe he's gonna have to have surgery miss the rest of the playoffs it hasn't had the surgery yet but with him going into free agency and number one it's just I, I feel bad for this Clippers team even though they have some perhaps surly personalities to just other than 2015 they've never all been healthy really at once I guess 2014 they were too but these last two years 
just to never have a healthy shot and just lose and, and get some closure I think you know that's something that if I were in their position would haunt me a little bit even though you know we we're saying from the outside yeah this team isn't that good you know they never would have beat the Warriors anyway so what does it really matter but from their perspective they at least you know would have liked to have had a shot at it. you know I mean your athletes always believe in themselves so I do feel for them as a group in that respect do you feel that this injury makes it any more or less likely that Blake returns not off the top of my head. I, I I don't know if it affects the offers that other teams will make for him. And this is his first time at unrestricted free agency. So we'll find out what he really wants. What I think this might do, and I don't know how to really quantify this in terms of Blake, Doc, and, and Chris Paul, or JJ Redick, who's also free agent, is how they think about what running this back. So let's say the most optimistic thing is they all come back, they all turn the, they all turn the keys, and they have another three years together. What this might do, even if they it's, you know, the feeling of, oh, we didn't get our chance is the pragmatism as they watch these other teams go and say, what is this going to be? And maybe Blake being out of it entirely might actually cause a different perspective there. Yeah, I do feel, I mean, to have season ending injuries in the first round of the playoffs two years in a row and then you know this is another surgery for Blake as well and when you throw in that he's had the surgery that he's also has been really injury prone with the lower body this is his second surgery of this season he had this quad issue where he was basically took him like six months to get back from that he couldn't play in the Olympics you know certainly I think you're the chances of of him ever being and, and you know his diminished athleticism this year the chances of him ever being like a true frontline top 15 type of player in the in the league I'm I'm just about ready to shut that door now to be honest which well, is, is too bad he, he I would have liked for him to have a longer prime than he did because I think he's someone that is not we're gonna forget how good he was from like 2012 to 2014. That's a really good point and I never want to lose sight of that you and I actually spent a little bit of time this today we're talking about young Dwayne Wade and how sometimes you lose sight of how good somebody was early in their career kind of or even in their peak because of what happens after that yeah i, I agree with you um oh, oh yeah, i had, I mean, I had really one way, more point yeah yes the, the the about the stinging for the clippers is also both of those really the the injury benches that happened the last two years they led in both those series when it happened i mean they they won game three without right. blake so i would count that they would have i think they would have been the favorites to win this series you know i think they would have had a good shot of winning game four if blake had played so that that adds a little bit too it's not even like oh you know we would have we would have done that like they have a legitimate belief that they would have won both these series with blake and they still can win this one but it's a very it's a different feeling with that then maybe like the Blazers are feeling about Yusuf Nurkic as as helpful as he would have been I, I think the what if questions are very different there yeah, and I mean, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the Jazz have plenty to cry about as well. You know, if I mean, if Gobert and, and Hayward are healthy all series, and the, the Jazz, the series might be over already, you know. Uh, so uh, there's that aspect of it as well. I mean, I think this series is about a 50-50 proposition going forward. If I felt more confident in what they could get out of Gobert and Hayward in Game 5, uh, you know, I think I probably would favor the Jazz, even though they are going to have to go on the road for two of the last three. This is normally not an advantage situation. And I mean, the Jazz got to win game five, you know, winning game seven on the road. I mean, that is such a tall order that game five is a must win. We ready to move on to the main event? Uh, no, you know, I think we should spend another hour and a half discussing <laughs> these other series. Uh, yeah, but my, uh, and we've also done like, I think like seven hours of live video today <laughs> as well, uh, with the tour NBA show, which we really enjoyed. And of course, uh, we encourage you guys to keep watching. We'll figure out what our schedule is going to be for that after this and, uh, watch my Twitter account, Nate Duncan NBA for that and this was just a, a fantastic game uh, but I think the place to start with it as it was a 
110-108 victory for Memphis in overtime with Marcus Gasol hitting the game winner. How do we feel about the series now going forward? Because the Spurs have looked extremely vulnerable and they've looked extremely vulnerable in all the ways really that we thought that they would be vulnerable. And and that's always a concern going into the playoffs. Their offense has been Kawhi and then just periodic contributions from other guys. Well, Marcus Aldridge has, has disappointed me in this series. You would think that he would have some advantages, especially as they've Yeah, they're done... not getting in the ball enough, I, I they're feel. Not. Like only 11 shot attempts. Like, you know, they're not getting him the ball and pick and pop enough which you would think with when he's matched up against Randolph they should be able to get him pick and pop jumpers all day uh now part of the problem is they just go under on Parker every time and Kawhi is probably like not really quite fast enough to like dime him up and you know Mills isn't a great pick and roll point guard so that's part of their problem and also just not having enough shooting on the floor but you know they could run that play more often for sure I mean they got the same team last year they got all Aldridge could get for pick and pop jumpers early in that uh, series against the Thunder. And then also like when he's guarded by Green, uh, get him the ball in the post. He's I think he's been very effective in the post against Green so far. So, and so another, that's a concern. Yeah, uh, you're going to go. Yeah, into the go other. ahead. Well, so the other yeah, concern no, no. is there. Th- while they had a, a high ranked defense this season overall, there was this real question about whether that was going to persist in the playoffs when you play consistently higher end opponents and you have to change up the rotations. Yeah, they didn't have Deadman in this game due to illness, but overall in the series, yeah, the Spurs Pop hasn't have, trusted him. Anyway, yeah, so. but overall in the series, the Spurs have not defended at the level that will be necessary for them to move on, not only to, to like win the championship or anything, but even to make the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, David Lee, he's starting to get exposed now more for some of his old bugaboos in terms of his strength and rim protection than his mobility, which actually has been a pleasant, pleasant surprise this year. But you know, he, he had some ugly plays in this one. Uh, Gasol, you know, has not been trusted down the end of games either. Uh, something that must bother him going against his brother in this series. And Aldridge may be a little underrated defensively, but still not a guy who can move his feet that well on switches. We saw Mike Conley abuse him pretty badly on on the right side of the floor including for a nice floater in overtime that uh put memphis in nice position and then just in pick and roll defense i mean mike conley has just been embarrassing these guys uh and they try putting Kawhi on him that's not gonna help much either I mean, another situation where, hey, if they went a little smaller, maybe they could switch some of this stuff with Conley and make it difficult. But uh, Greg Popovich, he does did play uh, Bertans a little bit, who I actually thought amazingly was probably their best uh, defensive foreman uh, and probably their best shooter. But uh, and Bertans was plus thirteen in this one in ten minutes. I think he needs to play more, but he's still, you know, no Kawhi at the four. John Simmons uh, can't really get on the floor much. Uh, Slow mo, they don't trust. And then Manu Ginobili has been horrendous. He's yet to score. I think. In in the series he was 0 for 5 on some pretty decent looks as well so in his 16 minutes so they're not getting anything out of him um we were skeptical that their bench could be that good and you know they have not uh, they have hurt memphis when conley's been off the floor in the series i mean there's a ridiculous stat about that but uh you know i think overall they needed to take even more advantage uh, in some of these situations and just haven't been able to do it so i mean if not for Kawhi's heroics i mean with his this game probably wouldn't have been nearly as close and they they also forced a ton of memphis turnovers in the second half uh which you know i don't know that they're necessarily going to do that regularly in this series either so yeah i mean i you know i'm not going to say they're going to lose the series but yeah i don't feel good about this Spurs team at all right now and 
think about the disparity in terms of how they're going to head into the next series that Houston after you know that that little burst at the end of game four they're now up three to one I think they're probably going to win that series in five this Spurs one is going to go at least six maybe seven just wars each way for almost all of these games they're having to work Kawhi extremely hard they're going to be in very different places after the end of this series if the Spurs even win it which I expect them to yeah I do but still you know we mentioned this after Thursday's game Memphis has really looked way better especially when Conley's been on the floor I mean it uh this was a a ridiculous stat uh the Grizz are plus 4.2 per 100 possessions with him in the game in 143 minutes with him out of the game in this series and part of that garbage time in the first game negative 44.7 net rating so uh, and one thing that I thought actually, I thought Memphis was up 88 to 80 in this game, and I thought they actually didn't bring Mike Conley back soon enough in the fourth quarter. I thought they should have just not rested him, played him another two or three minutes, and then I think they would have actually won this game comfortably. And instead, they opened the door for Kawhi Leonard to nearly produce. I mean, he's had enough defining performances that he doesn't need this, but he was awe-inspiring at the end of the fourth quarter in particular. Yeah, we'll pick up the play-by-play, but suffice to say, he scored 16 straight points from when it was 88 to 80 with four minutes left and Memphis had the ball as well first he got switched off of Mike Conley and stole a pass went down uh Bertans dropped his pass and then Kawhi popped out for a three to hit that uh he then the next time down after a Carter offensive foul drove on Gasol probably traveled but missed it got fouled got two free throws so that got him within three and then Leonard got a steal as uh, James Ennis tried to drive on him. I wouldn't recommend that, James Ennis, uh, late in the clock. And uh, got an and one to tie it at 88. So it was a personal run of 8-0 with two steals leading directly to his own buckets. Just incredible. And then he just continued uh, to cook. Uh, He hit a pull-up three over Gasol and pick and roll to put them up by three. Uh, and he and forced then, a turnover before that, another one. Yeah, yeah, he, he did that. And then Conley blew past him, but Kawhi scared him from behind. He missed a layup. Uh, then a controversial play. Tony Parker missed a bad three from the left wing. David Lee got the offensive rebound. This is with uh, the Spurs up three. And with about two minutes left, he kicked it out to Patty Mills. And the shot clock never reset. So as Patty Mills is taking this wide open three, the shot clock goes off. And then Tony Parker and Lee are both kind of like looking around, complaining to the refs. Conley just goes right down and gets fouled uh, and hits two free throws. Uh, so that was, I mean, the the Spurs had a gripe, but also, you know, maybe they could have gotten back and played some defense as well. And it's, I mean, after, after you've made your first complaint, they're not going to change the call. So then it's 91-90, Conley makes both the free throws, and Kawhi gets a post up. And they had to help. I mean, that's one of the incredible parts about this is Kawhi has to draw so much attention, but then they ended up not scoring on that possession. Yeah, Marcus Gasol came over from the baseline. Uh, Parker missed the drive. And then with Kawhi on Conley, Conley actually told Gasol, he threw it to him at the elbow. And then they posted up Vince Carter on Tony Parker. They had to, David Lee had to come over to help. And then Zach Randolph had an easy layup finish and that actually put Memphis up by two and then Kawhi with under a minute left and Kawhi again completely ridiculous he tries to drive and pick and roll gets stopped gives it up then pops out for a tough three coming off a screen on the left wing contested by Carter and uh that put San Antonio up by two and then I thought one of the biggest plays of the game that no one is ever going to remember 
was just they try to enter the ball to Gasol at the elbow and uh Lamarcus trying to contest it gets called for a total ticky tack foul and it wasn't a play like yeah you know he might have got into him a little bit he got his hand on the ball Gasol corralled it though it wasn't a turnover and they called a foul Gasol got two free throws with Memphis in the bonus Gasol actually did not have a free throw in the or, or a field goal in the third and fourth quarters but he made those two free throws and that tied the game it was really a pretty weak call i thought and uh let them get right back into it and then uh leonard would hit another two-pointer very difficult one on jermichael green who they put in rather than james ennis who had five fouls i didn't agree with that i thought ennis actually had been doing a pretty good job but uh you know obviously leonard is scoring a lot of points anyway so leonard just hit this ridiculous fade away from the right elbow uh to put the spurs up too and then uh a coaching decision that we did not agree with uh defensively for the spurs no what has become a a a theme during these playoffs is coaches having weird personnel out there in a single single possession circumstance yeah donovan had robertson in on like a a possession where like they needed a three in the last an offense only possession where they needed a three yeah he does donovan does that all the time by the way but nonetheless uh yeah he left parker out there and we were saying on the twitter nba show as we were doing this live why is parker out there you know there they could go right at him and i thought it was a genius play design from davy he put troy daniels a great shooter in from the game Fisdale, sorry uh, oh, wow. Wow. That was uh, Dave Yeager, man. That's a uh, blast from the past. Yeah. David Fisdale. Thank you. I mean, I still pretty sad. I can't remember the guy's name when he had that epic rant. David Fisdale. Because, uh, yeah, Dave Yeager would never play Troy Daniels anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. So he put he put Daniels in and he was guarded by Parker, who, as we said, shouldn't have been in. They should have gone with like John Simmons, someone with a little bit more size. And the design was nice because they started off with a small, small pick and roll with Daniels slipping to go for a three that caused the switch Kawhi had to take him it was Parker on Conley Conley basically overpowered Parker but it was good defense by Parker but he had the advantage and Conley hit a beautiful righty floater from about 12 feet uh right of the lane and sent the game into OT yeah Kawhi had a chance I think there was very little time left but didn't make that shot yeah about three seconds left and and Ennis defended one I thought Ennis actually was fantastic defensively in the overtime after you know things kind of went back and forth uh really the sequence of the game was Memphis trailing 102 100 Conley just throws it away great steal by Tony Parker on the weak side Fisdale not Yeager Fisdale had inserted Andrew Harrison and we were saying on the Twitter NBA show why is this guy in they don't have to guard him at all uh you know but him not being guarded was part of why Conley didn't have anywhere to go on that steal and Parker throws it ahead to Patty Mills uh Danny Green who was awful in this game I think didn't hit a three was like 0 for 7 or something like that did not play down the end I still would have had him out there because he's really good but Pop loses confidence in him he doesn't have as much equity with Pop as perhaps he would with me but uh Patty Mills and Parker out there in the backcourt throws it ahead to Parker or to Mills and Andrew Harrison comes back and knocks it off the backboard and I thought it was a great job Joe Borgia uh in the league office said this on NBA TV later that it was a great point a lot of times the rest might say hey you know what we'll call the goaltend because now you can only review it if you call the goaltend and it was a good block but that would have taken away the subsequent Memphis fast break so they had confidence in saying that it was a good block it absolutely was then they came down and uh Marc Gasol scored his first field goal uh, after halftime as David Lee attempted a comical attempt at a charge that was 
absolutely abysmal. I mean, another one of those, I talked about this with the Jeremy Grant foul like an hour and a half ago, but the idea of not basically not doing anything to prevent the shot, not do just, just basically a no chance play by David Lee. And so instead of it being worst case, a tie game, Memphis was able to take the lead. And that one point ended up mattering quite a bit. Lee deserves credit for the strides that he's made being a part of a good defense. Sure. Uh, and he was, he made some some strides as well as last year in Golden State 2013-14 well not his last his last year as a starter in Golden State uh but this was a throwback to all of just the BS David Lee fake hustle that you used to see just not in position decided he was just gonna fall down didn't take the foul and I mean that's the worst thing up to there to give up the and one and not even really make an attempt to stop the ball just to fall down and hope the ref bails you out uh did not work and that that was the key play uh but uh then Kawhi came back gave the Spurs the lead with a completely ridiculous free-throw line jumper on a pump fake it was great D by Ennis and Kawhi managed to rim it in and that's when Conley got the switch on LaMarcus Aldridge on the right wing blew by him for a lead and then Ennis with great defense forced Kawhi to lose it and uh Memphis actually was looking pretty good there uh, after that yeah, I mean, so then Kawhi, one of the few shaky defensive possessions that he had, he he went for a reach and Connolly just went to the free throw line, but he missed one. Another story of, of the weekend games or the whole first round is point guards missing free throws or just pivotal free throws. So it was it was a four point margin with 30, yeah, about 106, 102. Yeah, with I think about, I misspoke earlier. With, thir- with yeah. about 31 seconds to go. And that means, you know, when you're down four in that sort of circumstance, you basically need to treat it like you, you like you need at least five points. But and they only had one timeout left, so they had to get a, they had to kind of do a lot at the same time. Yeah, it was another weird lineup for Pop kind of needing a three. He had Lee Lamarcus, who doesn't take a ton of threes, Tony Parker still on the floor they Mills tried to bring it up and he tripped it just went to Kawhi Marcus uh after Kawhi got a, came off a little bit of a screen was too far back and Kawhi hit another ridiculous three-pointer to get them within one and after uh Andrew Harrison uh hit two money free throws uh then it was really maybe one of my favorite we've been a little critical of pop here uh but one of my favorite uh plays drawn up of the playoffs just a beautiful screen it, it looked like the main action was Kawhi coming off of a down screen he looked like he was open and I was kind of wondering all right why is he not shooting it but he wasn't that open and that was because Mills then faked to just kind of run away LaMarcus screened his man Harrison Jamichael Green didn't switch out fast enough he had to run at Mills who had a wide open three Mills pump faked it then Kawhi's man had to come off of him in the corner to try and get Mills and that got Kawhi Leonard the hottest guy on the floor just a wide open corner three but I mean that's I love Pop drawing up the play for Mills using Kawhi as a decoy I mean there's so many coaches uh that just would not be willing to do that with a guy who's hot with their star player. And that is, you see some of the equity that Pop has in San Antonio there, and uh, it paid off by doing what's best for the team. And it, ironically, it was Leonard himself, the decoy, who got the three-pointer to tie it at 106. And then, so... I'm with, sorry, no, at 108. At 108. And then that led to 7.2 seconds left. Spurs, at this point, I don't think they had any timeouts left. But anyway, Memphis was going to take the clock down, and Marcus Gasol ended up with the opportunity yeah they entered the ball to to Gasol at the elbow they had Conley coming off for a dribble handoff and uh, when they were sitting together in the presser after the game Conley was like oh yeah you know Mark had the option to hand to me or he could 
drive and he made the right decision and mark was like oh yeah you know there's no way i was handing it to you i was shooting that <laughs> so uh, mark made a, as quick a spin move as it gets going to his left and then a one foot fadeaway runner from 15 feet over a seven footer and he scored it to win the game san antonio had no timeouts left with 0.7 remaining and had to just settle for a heave and uh series tied now at 2-2 what's your gut feeling on how this one ends now danny i feel like it's going seven and I think the Spurs are going to win in seven, but I feel like it's going seven. Memphis played has played so well the last two games. Like that, I think back to the first two games in Chicago in the Chicago Boston series, ignoring what happened after that in terms of Rondo. Like it wasn't just that Memphis won. Memphis played really, really well, and it took a superhuman effort from Kawhi Leonard to make this one a game in the first place. And so I think that Memphis certainly has a shot of winning Game Six. I think they have an outside chance of winning Game Five. So I expect the Spurs to win the series, but but they're going to put some miles on them on their best guys. And now Mike Conley, 35 points in this one, plus nine, four of eight on threes. I mean, he's going to have a bad shooting game at some point, although I do think the Spurs have some structural difficulties in terms of guarding him and pick and roll. Um, but if Conley can't have these dominant performances, I do think that Memphis is going to struggle to score. Uh, but they, I mean, they've been very effective over the last two and a half games. And that's what's really got to be worrying for the Spurs is their inability to stop the Grizz especially when Conley is out there what do you see in terms of uh, adjustments for either team here I think that starting Ennis starting Randolph has worked great for not Dave Yeager but David Fisdale and uh, they also got some nice minutes off the bench with Jermichael Green hitting two out of three three pointers he had 14 points uh, pretty randomly had not scored well in the series so uh, I mean, I think it's more really on the Spurs now to come up with something that they can do differently, even though they did play much harder in game four. It wasn't enough. I'd like to see more Bertans, actually. I thought he did a nice job and make Zach Randolph defended space. We it, it feels like it's been the entire duration of the Dunk They Dunk did Best. do more of that, actually. They did I more, should, I should but say they, that. they should we'll do even more. In, in the first half, yeah. They should just live off of yeah. that. I mean, the war... The, they, they did the, not do that as much in the second half. And, and while Parker had, you know, he got 19 field goal attempts up in this one for 20 two points uh you know he was hitting some tough mid-rangers I, I do think that's a great point but they don't you know the spurs are not really a great high pick and roll team anymore and that's another mm-hmm. kind of issue i think yeah i mean it, you could rely on Monty to do that when he hasn't made a shot in the not only hasn't made a shot hasn't scored a point in the entire series yeah that's pretty incredible that he could go four games uh, and you know be like oh of 17 from the field or, or whatever he is that's really kind of sad to see I hope he is able to bounce back a little bit in this series because he again has had a, a reasonably nice year this year yeah I'll, I'll wonder where pop's gonna go with his big man rotation he certainly hasn't trusted Dwayne Dedman I don't feel that David Lee is worthy of that trust against the best of the best and Bertans I think is interesting of course Kawhi yeah, the soul is a statue in, in pick and roll so and I mean Parker had a good game here but just keeping an eye on on the Mills Parker dynamic, I thought Mills has had some inspired has had some inspired stretches. He hasn't been really great either, which is another concern for the Spurs in terms of both the short and long term. But I think that you know if they're they're going to be relying a lot on Kawhi. I think they can use Lamarcus. We already talked about that earlier, but there isn't a quick fix to what's ailing them. And considering Memphis is good, but they're not elite, and they're you know they're they're missing not only Chandler Parsons but Tony Allen. We can say that missing Tony Allen is helping them with their spacing, but the Spurs should be playing better than they are. Even whether win, lose, or draw Memphis, even if Memphis is playing better than we expected, the Spurs are, they were the second best team in the NBA this year. Yeah. Uh, 
And, I mean, another thing that was concerning, only 16 assists for them, even though it was an overtime game, even though they scored 108. You know, just so reliant right now. Well, and and Memphis, had twi- Memphis had 22 turnovers. It was incredible. So Memphis had like 20 turnovers in the second half. I think they only had three turnovers at half. They had 19 yeah, turnovers. Yeah, I, I, I did a comment on the Twitter and media show that they combined for eight. I believe both teams had combined for eight at halftime. Then Memphis had yeah, something like 20 in the second half and overtime. Yeah, I mean, Kawhi Leonard's line in defeat should be noted. 43 points plus 18. I mean, we talked about without Conley on the floor. I think I read that the Spurs scored two points in the entire time that Kawhi Leonard was out of the game in this one. So, yeah, I mean, remember how, like, the Spurs were supposed to have this big bench advantage? Uh, eh, you know, not not really, uh, it turns out. And, and Kawhi, to be plus 18 and to have played 44 minutes, 43 points, six steals, eight rebounds, seven of 10 on threes, 14 of 30 from the field overall. I mean, and, and lose when you were plus 18 and you played 44 minutes. I mean, you know, we talked about it with Russ, too. That's... Uh, Kawhi maybe not built this that way, but it's got to be pretty frustrating. Yeah, well, I mean, we've already gone for two hours. Is there anything else we need to say? Uh, yes, and that is good night. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much to our sponsors. Today, Indochino used that cat space code to get any premium made-to-measure suit for just $389. And thanks to the company that makes the mattress that I sleep on, Helix Sleep. HelixSleep.com slash Catspace is your, your URL for $50 off a custom-made mattress. And of course, those codes and URLs, important to let them know that you came from us as well. We appreciate all your support. As always, thanks for checking this out, checking out the Twitter NBA show as well. We actually have unfortunately decided we're going to eliminate the delay for streamers because it occurred to us uh our viewership went down a little bit with the delay and for we really need to get more people watching to make this like a permanent thing in years going forward we're trying to build up an audience right now and so if someone is watching tv if they have to tune into the broadcast and like wait 90 seconds pausing their tv to sync up with us like that's just too high of a cost of entry and so i think we got to cater more to just tv people make it as current as we can and uh, we apologize to people trying to sync up but i know that uh, periscope the inability to pause it is kind of a pain but you know we're working with twitter and they're hopefully going to help promote the show so that's why we're doing it this way and we want to get as many people involved in this as we can so that we can actually you know start making some money off this thing and uh make it worthwhile to do for you know six hours a day during the playoffs or whatever it ends up being so we thank you for your support on that uh let people know about that as well if you're enjoying the telecast if you have suggestions on how to improve the show we also always appreciate those we've incorporated a few of those suggestions as well we always love the comments during the break as well it's a great way uh even if you can't sync up just uh during halftime commercials post game that's a great way to get involved with the show as well so we really appreciate that you can follow me on periscope nate duncan nba or twitter nate duncan nba to get notified of that and now that i'm saying the word notify as notify it's time to say good night talk to y'all next time at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.